listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. All right, everybody, welcome to episode... 11 of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I'm your host, the Samurai, and across the border from me is my good pal, Big Willie. Bonjour. There we go. A little French-Canadian this morning. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It's good to be back for another episode, and hopefully we won't have any sound quality issues this week. But uh, just to give you uh, listeners a little behind-the-scenes info, we've already had a few issues this morning, so there you go. (laughs) Yes, and as most of you know, recording in the morning... We're not functioning at full brain capacity or capability, and when things like this start happening, it's uh, it makes them all the more confounding. <laughs> yes, very so. difficult to get uh, <laughs> to get motivated in the morning, especially when you have an issue like that in the morning. It's just uh, oh, it's a nightmare. So <laughs> we'll just try to shake all those cobwebs loose and get rolling. You got it. <laughs> all right, so we got a couple things we want to go over here. We got the uh, the donors choose uh, pop syndicate fundraiser. I wanted to bring that up. Alyssa had sent us a email. Uh, Alyssa from Big Red Podcast. She had sent us an email last week, but we were recording while we got the email, so we didn't have time to really go over it and get into the details of it. But what we've done is we've added a widget to our uh, our home website at uh, ggtmc.libsyn.com to kind of help out with the fundraiser and stuff. And uh, you can always uh, check out more information at donors choose. Uh, I believe it's DonorsChoose.com or something like that. Uh, .org. Oh, yeah. .org. Oh, yes, .org. That's right. Anyway, you can go there, and also you can go over to the Pop Syndicate website and uh, check it out over there. But it's a good fundraiser, you know, helping classrooms and uh, things like that. And, it's, it's, you know, it's a good cause. I mean, I have to admit, uh, I'm going to have to give a little bit of money to that. Yes, as am I. I mean, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but it's the truth. I mean, you know, giving children... Um, the tools they need. I mean, they're, they're our future as, uh, you know, as much as it's a cliche, it's the truth. So, I mean, it's for a great cause. And I mean, especially this time of year, it's, uh, it'd be nice if a few of you could, you know, chip in what you have. I mean, even if it's $5, if, you know, one person does it and another does it, it's, uh, it's certainly for a good cause. Yeah, it adds up, you know. So anything you guys can do to help, that'd be great. Uh, also, I wanted to bring up, I got contacted by somebody through Facebook about a, uh, uh, basically a petition to bring the character of i believe it's frank black from the millennium tv show uh normally i wouldn't really mention this kind of thing but i actually was a fan of the millennium tv show and there's a website out there uh back to frank black.com www.backtofrankblack.com uh with basically an online petition stuff just try to get a millennium film made with uh lance hendrickson really i'm more of a fan of lance hendrickson than i am the millennium show so i just like to see lance in a movie uh, especially a movie starring lance that isn't you know a, a straight video piece of dreck that he typically makes nowadays so that's basically my support for it and i hope that uh you know you guys check it out if you're interested in that kind of thing i don't know if you got any comments on that uh will well i'm a big fan of the hendrickson as well and i'd watched a few episodes of millennium so yeah more lance on the big screen's never a bad thing <laughs> no no it's always a good thing yes sir also uh you know if you like I say if you're not a member of the uh, pop syndicate uh, family go ahead and get over there and sign up and get to join our boards and uh, you know the otc boards and Seven Diabolica, Big Red Podcast is over there, Mail Order Zombie, all kinds of things are over there. The Pop Syndicate family is a very tight community, uh, a lot of good shows over there. And uh, they still are doing their uh, five-a-day giveaway, or five-a-week giveaway, I should say. I always say five-a-day. It would be nice if it was five-a-day, but 25 things a week. But uh, they're still doing that, I believe. So, uh, you know, join up their Facebook group, and uh, maybe you can uh, get some free swag, and you'll... uh, 
quite enjoy that. I still wish I would have won that Sukiyaki Django Western. Yeah, that would have been nice. And the good thing is, this time of year, you can, as horrible as this sounds, you could re you could re gift what you get if you're in a real pinch. Yeah, that is true. Uh, that's about all I got. Again, you can contact us at voicemail at two zero six 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 five two zero seven, and our email is uh, midnightcinema@gmail.com. This week, we are going over two uh, very diverse films that share one common thread, which is the uh, snow. 1968's uh, The Great Silence, directed by Sergio, Sergio Corbucci. And uh, we were going over a new film, which is a new new territory for us, uh, Let the Right One In, directed by Thomas Al- uh, Thomas Alfredson, I should say. I should probably assume that's Thomas and not Thomas. So Yeah. Uh, or it could be Thomas. I don't know. Thomas, Thomas, potato, potato. Yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> Either way, it is new territory for us, a new film. We haven't done that yet, so this is the first time we'll be doing this on this show, and uh, should be quite a bit of fun. And that's about all I got for the intros. Uh, you got anything you want to add? Not off the top of my head, other than uh, we had a great showing last month on Podcast Alley. Uh, we finished first, which uh, may be unprecedented for a show as new as us. So we really, really appreciate the support of everyone. So if you could get over there again and vote this month, it's a new month. And, you know, it's it's time to start uh, clawing and scratching our way back up, hopefully. Um, we're in second right now. And, you know, like we've always said, uh, we'd like to finish first. Um, if we don't, you know, usually one of our, our sister shows will. But it's always nice to finish first. So if you haven't gotten over there and vote, by all means do so. You can do it through our website, ggtmc.libsyn.com. Right, right. It's very easy to do, too. That's how I vote nowadays. I just go over to the home website and enter my email and click vote now and then just go to my email and verify the vote. So it'd be great if you guys could do that. Uh, it is a new month. And, uh, yeah, we, I mean, we'll be honest with you. I mean, we, yeah, we always want to finish number one. So we are very thankful for the support we got last month. We really appreciate that, guys. Oh, yeah. It was excellent. So thank you, everyone. Really appreciate it. All right. With that being said, we'll go to our first break, and we will be right back. Hello? Is anyone out there? This is Brother D. Is is anyone else alive? You know, you'd think with all the zombie movies I watch and review for Mail Order Zombie over at www.mailorderzombie.com, I would have been better prepared for the zombie uprising. I mean, every week I'd watch anywhere from one to three zombie movies, and my wife, Miss Bren, would join me in every episode to go over listener mail and even occasionally join me in a review of a zombie movie herself. But now, we woke up one morning and the zombies have taken over. Miss Bren went scouting for supplies, but she's been gone a long time, so I went out to look for her, and now now I just wish I'd stay home and watched more zombie movies for everyone, weeding out the good ones from the bad. What? Wait a minute. Who's there? Miss Bren? You're not Miss Bren. Oh, oh no! Send more podcasters. Guys, we're back from break here. A little interesting piece about that uh, music there I'm playing in the background. That was actually sent to me from a gentleman uh, out there who uh, wanted me to play play it, you know, promote his uh, music from a band he represents. So 
That's a band called, I think it's called Anti-Cool. I think it's what we've decided it's called, uh, Will. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and they just wanted us to, you know, to give it a, give it a spin. It's called Already Late. Uh, you can find it over at uh, garageband.com. Uh, go ahead and check them out. You can, I think their uh, home website, their UK guys, uh, Anti-Cool. It's A-N-T-I-Q-C-O-O-L dot C-O dot U-K. So there we go. Our first film today is a little movie called The Great Silence or Il Grande, uh, Il Grande Silencio. There we go. Pretty interesting little uh, spaghetti western. Uh, so I'll go over the plot synopsis and then we will get into this conversation because I'm sure it'll be a pretty good one. Yes. All right. So the basic plot is this. A mute gunslinger faces off against a gang of bounty hunters in the Great Blizzard of 1899. And a grim, tense struggle unfolds. Okay, so that's your basic plot synopsis. This is directed by the one, the only Sergio Carbucci, who is uh, considered by most to be one of the the great directors of uh, uh, spaghetti westerns from uh, Italy. Uh, Probably only second Mr. Sergio Leone. Uh, To give you an idea, Carbucci made uh, Django, which is mentioned quite often and is very influential over in Italy during this time, as almost every other film was called Django something. (laughs) Yes. So, uh, and he was also the guy that discovered uh, Franco Nero, who we call Franco here down here, but as uh, Will will probably correct me later on, it is actually pronounced Franco, so there we go. No, it's <laughs> Franco. Yeah, Franco. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. So uh, uh, this film is from 1968. I picked this movie, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to you, and let's get this conversation going. Well, the first thing I'd like to say is uh, is thank you. From the bottom of my heart. Um, this was one I'd never seen, and this is the beauty of doing a podcast. It was a film that I'd always wanted to see, but just hadn't gotten around to seeing yet, and um, you'd wanted to do it, and I'm very thankful you did, because it was an excellent, excellent film. The first thing that really struck me about this film that, that sort of differentiated it from, well, any Western I can think of, for the most part, uh, at least spaghetti Western, for, to be certain, is the fact that this movie takes place in Utah during basically a snowstorm um, when the snow is, is almost waist deep. Usually, um, you know, westerns are very dusty and, you know, a lot of dirt and tumbleweeds, and this uh, this is all white. Yeah, very white. As a matter of fact, there's sometimes when the screen is completely white and you don't even know you're looking at snow, actually, until you can start kind of start seeing that, uh, you know, that kind of sparkle, that almost glitter effect you get from uh, fresh snow if you hit it just at the right angle. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And it was, you know, at first it was a little disorienting, even to the, to the point where there's a flashback where you see some men on horseback um, riding over some grass. And it was it was almost disorienting <laughs> to see green again after just you're just the move the screen is uh the landscape at least is a wash in white right you know um so that was the first thing i noticed about this film well there's a lot of i guess you know there's a lot of sort of different touches about this film i mean even the gun that uh the silence uses i think it's a german gun it's a mauser was it or yeah is that yeah. what it was called a mauser it's either a mauser or a luger it's one or the other i don't know which one it is but uh yeah, I love it. I love the case, too. And, of course, the case comes in later. I, I, the first time I saw it, I thought, wow, that's a really cool case. Although it doesn't seem like it would be efficient for quick draws, but evidently I'm wrong about that because it doesn't take, you know, five minutes into the movie and you can see how fast silence is. <laughs> yeah, he is very quick with that gun. Of course, you know, anytime you get a movie with any any uh, amount of violence with snow involved, it's always really nice uh, visually to see sort of blood splatter on the white snow. Yeah. Oh, this is that uh, great uh, Italian blood, too, from uh, the late 60s, early 70s, that uh, almost uh, like red paint. Yeah, you get that a lot, and and my wife commented on that last night. She watched a bit of it with me. I mean, even when you look at... um Japanese movies. I think pretty much most movies, at least, probably even including American movies, they always had that red paint blood uh, at that time, unless they were spraying out, like arterial spray. 
Yeah. I'm not going to go over the cast or Corbucci too, too much. I know you already did. I did want to say, you know, technically I thought this film, uh, obviously, was pretty sumptuous. I mean, right near the beginning of the film, when we're introduced to Loco and his his gang, um, and Loco's played by Klaus Kinski, the great, the one and only, Loco shoots the uh, uh, the one guy, and you see the you get the shot of the mother, his, his older mother, with the blood splattered on her face at the beginning of the film. Yeah. And uh, it was a pretty powerful shot, because this woman thought that uh, they were going to help her son I think it was and and he ends up getting gunned down in front of her and just you know you get the shot of her her mouth kind of open you know you don't get the soliloquy or anything from her you just see the the expression on her face and and the blood on it and it was a really powerful shot no it was the uh a lot of the uh ruthlessness of uh the gang is pretty obvious actually it wasn't loco that shot him it was the other guy loco was just there oh yes 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 okay you're right yeah it was the other guy who was you know <laughs> who comes up later in the scene eating a roasted chicken which might be the most disgusting eating scene in the history of cinema <laughs> it is and i i had that on my list of notes i scratched it out but <laughs> since you brought it up this, the guy's wearing a fur coat he has chicken grease on his hands, picks his nose, and he wipes the combination of chicken grease and snot on his fur coat. <laughs> the whole time he's still chewing and uh, you know sucking on a drumstick. It's it's just oh, oh it's just disgusting. It's appalling. <laughs> even the noises in that scene. I think at the beginning, it's, I think they even like piped in the noise of like hogs eating or something. Did you? Oh, yeah. yeah, it was terrible. It sounded like more than one person chewing on that drumstick. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it was really disgusting to say the least. One thing that they used, I think they maybe could have used a couple more times, but maybe by this point, Kravucci was smart enough to to refrain from it. Um, you know, anyone who knows Klaus Kinski knows he has great eyes. He has those really great kind of crazy eyes, and they did a few close-ups of him, uh, of his eyes, which are great. Um, they didn't use too many, though. I mean, it wasn't like they hammered it, and that might have been a smart choice uh, on the part of Corbucci, because this film itself, I think, is very... Atypical of, uh, or it's very aware of a lot of the the genre conventions. Yeah. So I guess that maybe that's why he didn't use more close-ups of uh, Kinski's eyes and, and the other characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kinski's eyes are uh, some of the most unique eyes in uh, cinema. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I can imagine knowing what I know about Klaus, uh, you know his craziness and everything. Uh, I can imagine there was probably quite a struggle behind the scenes because this is actually maybe one of the more restrained performances from Mr. Kinski, who typically is so far over the top that uh, some people can't stand him. But this actually is maybe a little bit more. I mean, there's still Kinski-esque moments. I mean, there's still moments where you're just like, this guy's going to fly off the handle any second now. But he's yeah. pretty restrained in this film. Uh, still very powerful, like Kinski always is. I mean, he's this one of the oddest looking dudes I've ever seen before. My life and yet he commands the screen whenever he's on it somehow Uh, it's just weird yeah he does definitely have a presence um whenever he's on screen and anything it's weird though i was looking at his imdb and the the main picture he has he looks like the european uh fashion designer carl lagerfeld (laughs) i don't know if you've ever seen him sammy he uses that little chinese fan to fan himself uh yeah i know who you're talking about and it's funny (laughs) you mention that because i'm looking at that same picture right now so (laughs) yeah it looks like i just it's so bizarre i picture carl lagerfeld uh I don't know. So you, yes. know, you know I love him because uh, I love those actors that are just a little bit insane. <laughs> yes. No, I know you, you'd said that, and he certainly is at the front of the line uh, in that camp. You know, a few more technical things. I, I love the shot of Loco riding in uh, through the white snow. It almost looked like mist. Again, it was one of those shots you, you touched on briefly earlier where you can't really make out what's what. And, you know, slowly the, the shape of him uh, emerges through this this white misty kind of snow. Uh, I thought that was, again, just another stunning shot. You, you know, speaking about that, 
I know they'd shot, I, I looked this up because I was very curious. They'd shot a, a good portion of this in, in northern Italy, but I mean, God, I can't imagine, you know, the conditions they shot this film under. You know, I mean, it was just, the snow was so deep. Yeah, I mean, there's like at least two scenes. Yeah, at least two scenes, I think, where horses give out mm-hmm. uh, because the snow is that deep. I mean, uh, they just give out from exhaustion trying to get through the snow. So, I mean, oh. that gives you an idea how deep that snow is. Yeah, and it's up to the horses, uh, their stomachs, pretty much. So, I mean, that's got to tell you that it's, you know, it would be up to... And these weren't little little ponies. I mean, these were big horses, sturdy horses. So, for it to be that deep on them, I mean, yeah, it would definitely be waist deep or, or a little deeper on a man in some of the parts. Yeah, I wouldn't know. We don't get that much snow down here. You might uh, you might get uh, three or four feet up north, but we don't get that much down here. I don't know if you guys get that much anymore, but... Um, we don't get as much in Toronto as everyone thinks. We're kind of the wimps of Canada in that we don't get as cold or... Don't get as much as Buffalo right across the way, huh? Yeah, Buffalo gets slammed there in the snow belt. We get enough, we get enough though, man. Last year was awful, let me tell you, but that's uh, that's probably for another, another day. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk for a moment about Ennio Morricone's uh, score in the film. Um, as usual, it was uh, excellent. Yep. Um, particularly, well, the main theme, and it's funny, I find a lot of times with theme songs in westerns, uh, well, specifically with the Trinity one, uh, and now with this main theme song, it didn't grab me right away, but the more I heard it throughout the film, the more I loved it, to the point that by the end of the movie, it had become one of my favorite uh, western themes that I'd heard. Yeah, you know, Morricone, I think, has that effect on a lot of people, because, uh, you know, the first time I heard the theme, uh, or the music in Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, people would always say, oh, it's some of the greatest uh, film composers music uh, you know film music of all time and then the first time i saw once upon a time in the west is like oh this music's terrible uh it just it's out of key and it's got this weird harmonic kind of loud whistle noise to it and but as the movie went on you know harmonica's theme stuck with me more and more you know and it seems to be that way with everything morricone does it seems like the at first when you hear it you're like mm, maybe not <laughs> But as the time goes on through the music, uh, through the film and stuff, you start to see that he's building a theme, and uh, you know he really always kind of brings it to the the full circle toward the end and stuff. And by the end of the movie, you know you're humming the damn theme all the time. I, I think I I watched this on uh, Sunday. I think I hummed the theme uh, for the rest of the evening. So there you go. It stuck with me again too. Yeah, it's it's just a marvelous, marvelous piece of music. And even further to that, whenever uh, Vanita McGee's character was on the screen, um, I believe it was a violin. I mean, you're a musician. You'd know better than I would, Sammy. But God. When Whenever she was on the screen, um, the music that was was uh, laid behind her scenes was just so steeped in sadness. Yeah. Um, just very sorrowful music, and really masterfully done as well. And again, that's not surprising, considering that was Marconi, obviously. Yeah, and you get the uh, the trademark Marconi things, too, which is, uh, you know, little sounds in there and uh, weird, like, electric guitar-type uh, noises. I mean, he, he was a big fan of uh, mixing noise and with his scores and, you know, turning noise into music, and uh, it's really good stuff. I mean, this is this is definitely one of his best scores, and that's saying a lot if you guys are familiar with Marconi. Oh, yeah. Uh, even, I think there's one point near the end when it even sounds like he was uh, mixing in, like, a sitar or some sort of an Eastern instrument. Yeah, yeah, that might have been that. That's either a sitar or it might have been like a weird guitar with some effects on it. He just he just used a, he's just one of those kind of composers who he loves music. So he would go and and listen to all kinds of other composers and musicians, and he would just you know he would gravitate toward things because he liked them, and then he would just kind of mix them into his music. And uh, you know that goes as far back as Fistful of Dollars and uh, using the whistling. You know, I think he might have been the 
He might have been the first composer to use the whistling, which, of course, was copied a million times, the whistle. So by a million different composers. Well, not by a million different composers. By the, by the five or ten uh, composers in Italy that were working at the time, they all kind of tended to use the whistle after uh, a fistful of dollars anyway. Yeah, and, you know, like you'd said, I mean, he was so masterful with music in general that, you know, he would combine sort of classical elements with very uh, earthy elements. Earthy, maybe that's not the right word. But very sort of uh, around-the-world uh, or world music type elements, uh, as well as odd sounds, as well as very current popular instruments, just to combine all that together and make it work. It certainly takes the skill of uh, someone who's, who's very masterful at composing music in general, because you know you can stick to one of those things, but to combine all of them a lot of times in one in one score and make it work, uh, it's really really impressive. Yeah, what always amazes me when we talk about Morricone is his. Uh you know how prolific he was how many scores he wrote and composed i mean it's amazing to me he has so much good music considering how much he had written now that's to say he does have some bad stuff too don't get me wrong i mean you'd have to look for it but and i doubt we'll probably cover very many films where he does bad stuff because his music always adds a lot to movies but mm-hmm. there is some bad stuff out there but he has so much stuff that it's uh it's amazing to me this guy was so prolific man and he he was really good you know i mean he can be way over the top his music can dominate a movie like it did in the leone film especially once upon a time in the west or it can be real subtle uh, just not forget about you know John Carpenter's The Thing. I mean that's real, real subtle stuff. You barely even hear any music in that. Yeah, no, exactly. It complements it more than it, um, I guess, over not overrides it, but you know what I mean. It, yeah, it's not. Oh yeah, like you said, it's just it's not over the top. It's a sort of an underlying sort of subtle thing as opposed to just bombastic big operatic score. Um, so yeah, I mean that's what I wanted to say about the score. I thought it was uh, it was absolutely excellent. Um, the dialogue I thought was pretty good in the film. Uh, it was well written. There's a few good lines, you know, when they're setting up the mythology of of the character Silence. Someone is I can't remember who it was. Uh, is was, I don't know if it was Vanetta McGee's character or not, but someone was talking about him being called Silence, and they say yeah, he's basically called Silence because wherever he goes, the sound Silence of Death Follows, uh, yeah. you know, kind of setting up the mythology, which I thought was pretty badass. And, you know, his character is one of these guys that his his thing is he tracks down bounty hunters because they've kind of gotten out of hand uh, in this day and age. It's sort of a, they're exploiting the law that, you know, uh, they're pulling in people that are branded as criminals. And what he does is he gets, he antagonizes them to shoot first. And then he, because he's such a quick shot, uh, you know, he ends up killing them. But, um, you know, setting up that mythology with his name and that line, I thought was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty cool, pretty badass. Yeah, I think Corbucci knew what he was doing because there's uh it's basically like a like a grim reaper mythology uh yeah and there's actually a scene where you see one of the people that are living in the forest or the woods or the snow they're walking and they have a scythe i think it's how you would call it a scythe like a grim reaper oh yeah you just yeah you see that and then they're coming over like a little hill right and then you see their head and yeah 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 because i think uh they think at first you know god it's the grim reaper and then they realize it's just a person but you know they bring up this mythology of silence and everywhere he goes you know you know silence follows you know silence of death and everything so i think corbucci knew what he was doing setting up uh some kind of type of grim reaper type mythology so it was it was well set up no it yeah it certainly was uh and even kinski there's a, an exchange between uh kinski's character loco and frank wolf's character sheriff burnett um i believe it's when they're in the wagon when burnett's first coming into town and kinski uh is basically says to him why can't a man provide for his uh his old age and uh burnett's character says to him i don't think you're gonna make it to old age or I'm gonna make it. Yeah, and I don't think just you're gonna make it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Because Burnett, right away, I mean, he's a, a man of strong morals, and he can see that Kinski is one of these guys that hides behind uh, the law. You know, yeah. he, he uses it, he exploits it uh, for financial gain. 
Um, and, and Burnett does not like him because he's a man of honor, a man of, uh, you know, man of integrity and believes in, in the law in its purest form, not uh, to uh, capitalize or exploit it for his own benefit. Right. Yeah. The, we'll, let's talk about Burnett for a second here. Uh, Frank Wolf is an actor, American actor, who went over to Italy to make uh, uh, films. Uh, he... He his face is more known than his uh, name. Uh, his name is not really that well known, but he's uh you know he's in the, toward the beginning of uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. It's a very memorable role. It's only a short one, but it's a very memorable one. And then uh, he's in uh, quite a few I think Giallos and things like that. But uh, I can't really you know name anything off the top of my head. I think Death on High Heels. I think he's in that. That was actually one of his last Death Walks on High Heels. Yeah, was one of his last roles. Yeah, and he was pretty good in it. Actually, he looks different. He doesn't have that that trademark mustache because usually in, in every film he has some variation of the mustache. But in that one, I. Th- I think he's clean shaven and it was it was a pretty good role he plays a doctor in it um yeah he was good in that and it's funny i didn't even recognize him i thought god i know that face i know that face i actually had to look it up and then i i was like oh it's frank wolf yeah frank wolf was great and this might be out of all the performances i've ever seen him in this might be his best performance uh he it's it's really weird he in all all the reviews I've ever read of the Great Silence and everything, they all say that you know Frank Wolf brings his comedic talents and his uh, you know likability and his lightheartedness to this film. Uh, I talked to you about this. I guess he brings that to this film, but the film is so dark that I don't really know, and the characters in it are so dark. I don't know if he's bringing anything funny to the table as much as he's just kind of being normal. And it just kind of seems funny because, you know, there is a scene where I think he punches at, you know, at a jail cell and he hits his hand. And I guess it's a moment of physical comedy, but uh, it's a pathetic punch, by the way. But but I I don't really see the comedic elements, you know, and maybe that's the tone of the film that that caused that, that I didn't see that. But either way, this is probably, and I haven't seen all of his performances, but this is definitely my favorite performance by Mr. Wolf, uh, who unfortunately, uh, I think, uh, ended up taking his own life, I think, by the time he was like 40-something years old. Wasn't much much after that uh, High Heels film, so there you go. It's really sad that, uh, you know, those things happened, but unfortunately it did. Yeah, it's a shame. There was only a couple moments where I thought he was a little clunky. Yeah, the the punching of the the cell, and then there was one other moment where I remember just going, ooh, that wasn't very good, but other than that, it was an excellent performance, and yeah, I mean, this film is so downbeat, and so... Just it's a, yeah, it's a very downbeat film. That yeah, he was just more of a normal person and wasn't didn't have all this baggage uh, at least on the surface. But no, he was great in it, and it's uh, it's a shame that he didn't work uh, a little more. I'd like to go back and and I know he did a few Castellari films, um, and I'm you know big fan of Enzo Castellari, so I wouldn't mind going back and seeing a few of those. I don't know if they're on DVD, but I'll look them up. I know he did a western with Castellari, "Go Kill Everybody and Come Back Alone," yeah. which is uh, a great title. <laughs> yeah, that's an Italian western title if you've ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I liked the the reveal because uh, I, I obviously wasn't aware of this. Uh, the reveal on silences, uh, well, I guess for lack of uh, a better description, his silence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't give it away. Um, but I thought that was uh, was interesting. Again, adding to the mythology and depth of the character. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is Corbucci's kind of commentary on spaghetti westerns in a way. You got to think about spaghetti westerns. Almost all your heroes in spaghetti westerns hardly say a word. Yes. Uh, it just seems to be their way of doing things, you know, and that kind of carried over when Eastwood came back to America and started making westerns. He wouldn't say much either. Always, to me, the best westerns are the westerns where, you know, the good guy or the anti-hero or the, you know, the the bringer of death, whatever you want to call him, <laughs> is uh, is always quiet. I think Corbucci might have been commentating, you know, making a commentary on the fact that, you know, all these heroes are quiet. Well, mine's so quiet because, you know, he's, you know, basically had his, you know, his throat cut, which I'm not giving anything away here. Because he's called the Great Silence. He's called Silence, and that's just the way the character is. But I know the role was uh, originally offered to uh, Mr. Nero, uh, so this movie 
would probably have been more popular if uh, Nero would have been in it instead of Jean-Louis, uh, I can't even say his last name, Trin- Trinigat, Trinig- Trinignat, something like that? Um, <laughs> let me see, actually. I'm not in front of his name right now. Yeah. Good luck I saying s- that last name. It's difficult to... Uh, <laughs> Trintignant? Trintignant? I don't know. We're probably both butchering it. Yeah, he, he's probably most well-known for, uh, I think he was in uh, in God Created Women, the uh, uh, film with Brigitte Bardot. He did a lot of uh, French romantic comedies. Uh, this is the only Western he ever did. Yeah, he did. He was very prolific. Uh, he, I wanted to see if I'd seen him in anything else, and he's been working since, the I think, the mid to late 50s. Um, he had a little period there where he worked... Um he worked in Italy, and in fact, there's a movie I've always wanted to see that he was the star of, and I didn't realize that, and it was The Conformist. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've always wanted to check that out. But yeah, He's also, God, he was I also mean, in the uh, Kozlowski uh, or whatever his name was, uh, the, the Czech director, oh, uh, the Red. Red. Uh, yeah, Red, he was in that. So Yeah, no, and I'd like to go back and see that, because um, I know he only agreed to do this film because he didn't want to learn any dialogue, but, you know, with that being said, it's, it's easier on paper to pull off... Um, no no words or you know uh not being able to convey anything uh, through lack of words and and you still liked the character you still felt for him yeah he still got he, even though you know i'm assuming that he probably spoke mostly french you know this is like all italian films of that period you know you had a frenchman you had kinski who was german you know you had wolf who was american i'm sure there was a lot of different languages going around <laughs> oh there uh, was there's italians and <laughs> americans and yeah german french <laughs> So I imagine, you know, not wanting to learn any dialogue, you know, that that's probably one of the reasons why he did do it, yeah. And then also, you know, he's got a great face. I mean, he's got a – it's really a shame he didn't make more Westerns. You know, he's maybe not the, the great Western uh, antihero. He doesn't have the presence of a Nero or even Terrence Hill or, or Eastwood or those guys, but he does uh, have a presence in the film uh, and great face. So Yes, he certainly does, and I would have liked to have seen him do more stuff. Um, I'm not very familiar with his French work, and I will – check it out uh, at some point and yeah it's funny yeah corbucci does take the sort of silent anti-hero to the nth degree with with this role and i mean even kinski's character technically he doesn't break the law you know and again i think it's commentary on that that um the law is exploited so much that in the end it's the poor people or the defenseless that end up suffering not you know not the rich or 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 the, the powerful it, it's inevitably the farmers and the poor people that end up suffering as a result of law uh, being followed to the letter and not looked at uh, for justice but more for sort of technical legal reasons yeah this is a uh, yeah it's a deeper film than you you would think going into it you'll think oh this is a spaghetti western set in the snow but then when you come out of it you'll feel uh, you'll feel kind of different about it yeah i think you know it definitely has a lot of layers that you know, it, it certainly warrants uh, a lot of thought or contemplation afterwards. You know, once you th- dig deep and really think about the themes in the film, it, it really, really does. It's not. It's, it's certainly beyond what's on the surface. Um, I'd read in my uh, research for the film that uh, actually, you know what? I'm not going to say that. I, I was going to say something that I think is a little bit spoilery, but uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to say it. Just some of his inspirations for the film. Um, and it wasn't film-related, but they were more throughout history. So I don't want to say that because I think it spoils part of the film. Um, I want to say that Luigi Pastilli was unrecognizable to me here. I did not even recognize him uh, in this film. <laughs> Which is saying something because Luigi Pastilli has one of the most distinct faces of Italian cinema in that period. So Yeah, he does. I mean, was it a few dollars more, I think, was uh, the first role I recognized him in. Yeah, yeah. And God, he's um, been in so many films. Uh, poof. You hear his name mentioned all the time on Cinema Diabolica, so that gives you an idea of how many films he's been in. I mean, he's been brought up on that show about, I don't know, 
ten times. Yeah, when I think of his name, I do think of uh, of Cinema Diabolica. Yeah, I can just hear F-13 saying, Luigi Pastilli. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, he just, he looked old in this film. He had a horrible set of chin straps. Oh, yeah, those chin straps. They were horrible <laughs> and awesome at the same time. I was teasing my wife. I was like, I'd like to grow, grow a set of those. And she's like, yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> go ahead. They were just terrible but yeah he looks so old and, and white in this film i guess shooting in the snow for a few months will do that to you but he didn't have that that sort of tan look uh that he's, he does he, in, he in still other brought films. the uh he still brought the creepiness which is he you know he's prone to do he's a mm-hmm. creepy awful character in this film yeah he's a real real fucking scumbag <laughs> he is oh i hated him so much in this film man what a rat bastard <laughs> Also, you know, in the fil- a- also in the film, if you, uh, his uh, partner is uh, Mario Brega, who uh, who's also in a ton of uh, spaghetti westerns and uh, 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 giallos too. So not as re- not as recognizable as uh, Pastilli, but uh, Mario Brega did a lot of films. Yeah, he looked familiar, um, but I can't say I remembered him specifically from anything. He's one of the gang members in For a Few Dollars More, but uh, he's um, also one of the gang members in just about every damn spaghetti western. So <laughs> I don't know if that narrows yeah, it down for you. <laughs> one of those kind of big hulking meatheads, I guess. In uh, in a lot of the films, no, I, I can't I can't say that I remember him even after saying that. I mean, I'm sure if I saw you know a, a frame side by side, I would probably recognize it. I thought the interracial love scene. Um, Probably had been done a little bit in the States, but this being a European film, um, I think that it could have only really been done that much in Europe at the time. I know there was a lot of un- civil unrest and a lot of uh, issues with that sort of thing on screen at the time. And again, I applaud and commend uh, the sort of forward-thinking European sensibility um, to have even just sort of prominent black characters in Westerns. You didn't see it that much, and you would know better than I would, Sammy, because you're more familiar with the genre as a whole, but outside of, uh, well, you know, Woody Strode in uh, Once Upon a Time and, and a few other roles uh, here and there, you didn't get a lot of black people playing prominent roles in Westerns, and it's a shame because historically they, they, they were cowboys and they were around then, so it would have only made sense, but um, I want to, you know, commend them for that, and I, I I think Fanetta McKee was was just excellent in this film as uh, the widow who who brings silence to town to get revenge for her husband being murdered. Yeah, no, she is great. I think you had said to me that uh, she looks like uh, Beyonce. <laughs> She does, but less annoying and more beautiful. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> now she uh, she's got great eyes too, man. The, her eyes and Kinski's eyes together. I mean, they look like a dozen eggs. <laughs> she, they were they were great eyes, you know. Seriously though, uh, she was actually in. Uh, it's funny because Alex Cox, the director of uh, oh I don't know Sid and Nancy and Repo Man, and Repo like Man, yeah. yeah, she was actually in Repo Man because he's such Ooh. a fan of this film. So was she the uh, the secretary at the? At the comp, the, the uh, car, uh, like where they would repo the cars. Was that? I, was I can't the, remember which role she was exactly. I do remember she's in it. That's all I remember. Because uh, I wondered where have I seen her face before? Where have I seen her face? And then I started thinking about Alex Cox because he's always been the big. He's always been a big champion of this film. He's always kind of pushed it everywhere he goes because he's a huge fan of spaghetti westerns, and uh, which is weird because he doesn't really make spaghetti westerns, but or you know films that even resemble westerns really. But he'd always kind of you know push this film, and I started thinking about him, and then I started thinking about his films while I was watching this film, and I thought, oh wait a minute. That's where I've seen her before. I saw her in Repo Man when I was younger. So yeah, she's in there at some point. I don't know which character she plays. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but. I want to say she was one of the girls that worked as like a secretary at the office. I know she was also the first time I'd ever seen her was in Detroit Nine Thousand. Uh, oh yeah, plays, yeah, she's in that too. That's right. Yeah, she plays one of the lead characters. Um, I can't remember his name. The detective's ex-girlfriends. Yeah. Uh, she was in Shaft in Africa. The unfortunate Shaft in Africa. She was in <laughs> Hammer with with the uh, titular Fred the Hammer Williamson. <laughs> Um, oh, too bad they never made a hammer in Africa. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. 
She she did the Iger Sanction, which I think is an Eastwood film I've always wanted to see. I think it's Eastwood, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the Iger Sanction is Eastwood, yeah. She, she did quite a bit of stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what she's doing nowadays, but... Uh, hopefully she's alive still, and, and I'll tell you this, she did a lot of quality stuff. Yeah, she's still alive. She did a lot of quality stuff, and it's a shame people don't mention her name more alongside other sort of 70s great actresses, because, I mean, just her eyes alone, I mean... She really, you know, that role of the the widow has been done so many times in westerns, and I mean, she really, I mean, I really, really felt for her. I mean, just the sorrow behind her eyes, just uh, it really pulled me in, and really, really, I think, despite having seen that that done so many times, it really pulled me in and made me feel for her. Yeah, and you know, you got to they should have given her an award anyway because she had to kiss Luigi Pastilli. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. That's a very good point. <laughs> Very good point. Um, let me just think here if there's anything else I want to add before I get into your stuff. Just a couple more things. Uh, there's a beautiful shot with uh, near the end of the film with silence kind of staggering into town, and it's snowing, uh, and it's nighttime, and the snow is coming down against this ink black kind of sky and you see him staggering into town and i thought it was just uh, a wonderful shot uh, or a wonderful moment in the film uh, really beautifully done yeah no the uh snow i don't know why i always say that i always go yeah no uh the uh i do that too don't feel that i say <laughs> yeah no and if you think about it you're contradicting yourself but i do it all the time yeah i don't know i don't know what the fuck i'm doing anyway uh the snow and the, <laughs> the snow in the film uh Every time I see a film like this, and it seems like when people use snow in films like these, and you were talking about it earlier, you alluded to the you know the red blood on snow. Uh, probably the best example of that, at least modern wise, is probably Fargo. I would assume. Uh, uh, I know that the uh, Coens wanted to make Fargo just strictly on the thought of red blood on snow. They just love the contrast of red blood on snow, so that's why they made Fargo. And you think about that for a minute. You think that two guys decided to make a movie just because they like how something looks, and then they make a film like Fargo. I don't know what you think of Fargo, but I love Fargo. I love Marge Gunderson, and actually Fargo is going to come up in our Let the Right One In review. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> So, I mean, the snow always adds uh, a flavor to a film that, uh, and maybe it's because there's not too many films shot in snow. Maybe that's why it always makes it unique. But I'd actually been on the boards over on uh, Show Show on at Pop Syndicate. I'd actually been over on those boards. And I think me and the Het had talked about how we both love films set in snow for some reason. And uh, maybe it's just because of that. Maybe it's just because, you know, we see, you know, typically with Hollywood, you see a lot of nice weather, right? I mean, you always see, you know, palm trees and sunshine and, you know, people, are, of course, are dressed like it's winter, and I know it's not that cold in, in L.A., but you always see that. You don't see snow that often, you know, and I think for cinema reasons, I think snow really obviously causes a lot of technical problems for directors and filmmakers and stuff. I mean, once you walk on snow, you're pretty much screwed, right? I mean, you, you, you can't reset a scene. You're fucked. I mean, there it is. You've already yeah. messed up the landscape. So, I mean, you can't really do much, but it does really bring this flavor, and of course, we'll talk about snow even more when the next film, because, again, it brings another element to the movie that... Uh, really adds a lot and there's just a lot of great scenes of snow falling in this film and there's one scene uh, i think you might have alluded to earlier the uh, where it's blow winds blowing and it's a blizzard and man that's like that's like the most white out i've ever seen in a movie i've never seen anything that white out ever that was that was natural it wasn't <clears throat> computer enhanced or doctored or anyway like it looked legitimately like a whiteout oh yeah i mean that looked like a whiteout i mean i've only been in one whiteout in my whole life and uh, uh it's a unique experience but that's that was a that was a whiteout and i've never seen one on film that's the first time i've actually seen one on film so it looked brutal. That's all I mean. It was a brutal mm -hmm. whiteout. <laughs> it did. It's such a punishing. You can almost feel the cold when uh, you see that snow on screen. So that's about all I got for the snow. The only other thing I wanted to say was that, in terms of the film specifically, was uh, the ending itself. I don't know if you... I, I, I'm not going to give anything away with the ending. Um, I just wanted to say I thought it was a very powerful ending. Um, I don't... 
I certainly won't say any more than that um, because I think the film has to be seen. Um, once you've seen it, you could private message us <laughs> and let us know. But uh, I don't yeah, know if you wanted to say. Yeah, more we're not. Than we're that. not going to spoil it. Uh, you know, we we try not to spoil things on here. I mean, every now and then we'll give you a warning that we might go into some spoiler territory. We're not going to spoil the ending of this film. Uh, it is a, a very powerful ending. That's all we're going to say. If, if anything, we want to entice you to check it out because this is one of the great spaghetti westerns of probably in the top five spaghetti westerns of all time. Some would argue maybe, you know, the best or the second best spaghetti western ever made. So if you're a fan of these type of films, check it out for sure because if you haven't seen it, you're really missing out. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, it's it's one of the best. I mean, I, I won't say it's the best, but it brings a bit of a different slant. It brings Corbucci, who worked in westerns and was really aware of it, uh, of the genre conventions. And that's a little bit different spin to some of the stuff, like I said, the landscape and the characters and, and whatnot. It's it's really, really worth checking out because it is a, a masterfully made uh, spaghetti western. Yeah, I'll, I'll just go over a couple more notes here and then we'll go ahead and get into the scores if that's cool with you. Absolutely. I'll just go to a, a couple other things I have, which, uh, you know, I will pretty much mention everything I was going to mention anyway. A couple of things that I'd like to add is uh, the film was I've evidently, in my research, was inspired by, by two films, actually, uh, Corbucci had seen that he enjoyed quite a bit. One was a pretty obvious influence when you think about it now, after seeing it. It was Bava's uh, Black Sabbath. Uh, this film's almost like a horror film in some aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's got those horror film elements and things, and it, it's shot pretty good. Uh, it looks like, you know, Bava could have actually been there in some ways. Uh, it reminds me of Bava a little bit. And also, uh, it's also inspired by a rarely seen Western that I've only seen one time, and oddly, I didn't even know I'd seen it. I thought I hadn't seen it, and then when I started doing research, I remember watching it with my grandfather when I was very young. It's a Western from 1950 called Day of the Outlaw with uh, the great Robert Ryan who was in The Wild Bunch and uh, and a couple other well a couple other a shitload of other uh, western films <laughs> to say the least uh, if you guys can seek that out and find it uh, great I haven't watched it in forever so I'm going to definitely be seeking it out again it's basically you know a sheriff in town and seven or eight outlaws right into town kind of a high noon type thing but really good stuff uh, I definitely recommend that I can't remember who directed it uh, off the top of my head but a uh, really good film the only other thing I really got is uh, I just want to say again the acting in the film isn't as important as the setting it seems uh, a lot of times in spaghetti western it just seems to be the case the way they the way they can shoot these films on a low budget and make them seem so epic has always amazed me mm-hmm. and uh, this is another case where you know they go to a different part of the world and shoot a movie and uh, I'm pretty sure there's only one set in the actual movie uh, one town and uh, the town's called Snow Hill uh, go figure uh, <laughs> That's pretty much the only town, and they use a saloon in it and everything, and that's pretty much it. But yet the the movie feels very big. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing to me that you can, and I don't know what the cost was and everything, but they were turning out these things, you know, one after another, and yet this here's this film that feels as big as Lawrence of Arabia, but probably only cost, you know, it probably was only made on the budget of Peter O'Toole's uh, Mascara from Lawrence of Arabia, so <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's the way these films were made, but uh, it has a great feel to it. So that, that's really all I got to add to it. I'll go ahead and let you go into your uh, scores and MVTs. Okay, I would love to do that. Uh, I will say very quickly, I just think it's a shame Corbucci's work, uh, well, a lot of times was very comedic. Um, I think he proved with this film that he was um, a master filmmaker of uh, more powerful, grim stuff, and I wish he did more politics films because he stuck with westerns I think right into the early 80s so I wish he had done more stuff outside of the westerns as good as he was in them I would have liked to have seen what he did more out of them yeah as many as he made he only made uh 
like uh, four, maybe five of them that are actually uh, really good. Yeah, I mean that's pretty yeah. amazing when you think about it. But you got to look at if you guys are out there, look at Corbucci's uh, resume. The guy made a shitload of movies, so mm-hmm. no, he definitely did. Uh, my make or break scene was the scene in. Um the horse-drawn wagon where uh, you sort of get the three main characters in the film all in this same tight space. Uh Um, You get silence in the wagon. You get Loco uh, opposite him on the other side of the wagon. And you get Sheriff Burnett when he's first coming into town because he was the new sheriff uh, being brought in. So you get the three of them all together in this tight space. Uh, You see along the trail, Loco, being a bounty hunter, has killed uh, men, left them in the snowbanks, and he's sort of, uh, he's roping them up on top of the the wagon to be transported to the town, to be buried. And just that, the tension in that scene or or the foreboding that uh, it was able to convey and, you know, having all those three characters in the scene and seeing the bodies on top of this this carriage and the snow and everything, it really, for me, set it up, uh, set it up quite well. Um, well, that was a great, great scene. Um, amongst many, I mean, there's so many good scenes in this film. Um, my MVT for this film, I could have went with Corbucci very easily. I could have went with the the setting. I could have went uh, a lot of ways with this. Um, but I went with Vanetta McGee. Um, her performance as the widow, uh, it just it was such a sad, sad performance, and it, it really struck uh, struck a chord with me and, and stuck with me. And like I said, having seen the the widow so many times in spaghetti westerns, you know, you'd think, well, here we go again. But it just it really was a powerful performance and um, amongst many good performances it, it just it's a shame uh, like I said she has isn't mentioned alongside a lot of other greats because she was great in it and my score is 8.5 out of 10 um, like I said at first I didn't know if I was gonna really get into the film but the more I watched it um, or as the movie went along I just realized that it was uh, just a, a classic a classic spaghetti western one of the best um, so that's my score yeah it is a bit of a slow burn in the beginning I will agree but if you stick around it, it pays off very well and uh, I I'd say by about the 20 to 30 minute mark, it really, really starts sucking you in. So that's a good analysis. I mean, a good analysis of the film because that's the way I think the first time I saw it, I felt the same way. I was like, why, why is this considered one of the classics? Why, why, uh, what is, what's so great here? <laughs> you know, well, I'm glad you on? felt that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've started thinking, what's wrong with me? You know, I'm a movie fan. Why, why don't I think this is great? Yeah. Am I an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, All right, so my make or break uh, scene here. I'm going to go with, and there's so many great scenes. Uh, that's the problem sometimes with these spaghetti westerns uh, is they have these great moments. Uh, I can think of about 50 in Django, and then, you know, God, don't even get me started on the Leone stuff. There's so many. If we ever cover Leone films, uh, we're going to both of us are going to be screwed. Yeah. It, to come up with one scene that summarizes a make or break in a Leone film, good luck. <laughs> Yeah, the scene that started from uh, one second into two hours and 42 minutes, and, <laughs> yeah. and that scene was masterful. Yeah, so I'm going to go with the scene where Silence is in the saloon, and he throws his matchstick. Again, we got a hero with a matchstick in his mouth. Awesome. <laughs> Don't think I wasn't thinking of Cobretti when I was watching that. <laughs> Yeah, he had a matchstick in his mouth, and he lights his cigar, you know, those little cigarillos that, uh, you know, Eastwood smoked to uh, such uh, popularity in the uh, early spaghetti westerns. And, and, you know, he uh, fucking silence is awesome, man. Not only can he shoot like a son of a bitch, but he can throw a matchstick into a shot glass from, and I'm just guesstimating here, I'd say he's at least about eight feet away. <laughs> yeah, he was. He'd be great at beer pong. <laughs> yeah. And it was a lit matchstick, too. So, you know, it's flying through the air. It's lit. It lands in there, and it lands in Kinski's drink. And kind of, he's trying to, you know, he's trying to kind of antagonize uh, Kinski into drawing first, which is his MO. But, you know, Kinski just pulls it out, and he's going to drink it anyway. Kinski don't give a shit, right? So he's getting ready to drink it. And then he, you know, 
takes his little cigarillo from the same distance, by the way, and throws it again and hits the shot glass again. But this time the shot glass is moving. So that gives you an idea of what kind of a dead eye this uh, silence has got. This guy might be the greatest marksman in the history of cinema. <laughs> and that's saying something. <laughs> that is. That really is. But that's the scene I'm going to go with. I love that interaction between him and Kinski. I mean, Kinski has to carry the whole scene because he's the one that does the dialogue, right? So he, I mean, because uh jean louis uh he uh he's not gonna he's not gonna say anything he's you know his name's silence he's got a you know cut across his throat or whatever and he's not gonna say anything but uh he's he holds his own with kinski without saying a word so that gives you an idea how impressive that little performance is without saying anything uh that was a great scene uh, that's what i'm gonna go with i almost went with the uh, potato shooting scene because i just thought it was kind of fun <laughs> yeah it was for my mvt i am gonna go with uh i am gonna go with corbucci uh this is arguably his best film uh he's made quite a few films that are really good uh some would argue that Django's a better film Django is is certainly more what's the word i'm looking for here maybe it's more accessible you know maybe uh it is more accessible but this yeah. is a better film yeah it's it's it, it's I get in arguments with people all the time who do like spaghetti westerns when it comes to Corbucci as if, you know, The Great Silence or Django, which one's the best one? It's hard for me to say, too, because I do love Django as well. Uh, Django is definitely, if you're going to get into spaghetti westerns, uh, watch Django first. <laughs> yeah, don't start with this. It's because it, it's, it plays with, not plays with the conventions, but it's very aware of the conventions of spaghetti westerns. And, and it isn't as accessible as a film, like you said. It is almost art, more arty or more cerebral. That's yeah. not to discredit Django. Django's a hell of a film. I love Django, too. But this is, to me, a bit more philosophical or, I don't know, it, it's just on a different level. Yeah, it is on a different level. And, and Django, you can just walk right into it. I mean, matter of fact, you could, if you've never seen Django before, you could walk in at the halfway point and still be entertained. So that's the kind of film Django is. So, I mean, I have to go with Corbucci in this instance. Corbucci's made a lot of films. Uh, some of them not so great. Some of them pretty damn good. And then, you know, at least a couple of them that are pretty damn great. So uh, I have to go with Corbucci. He is definitely one of the unsung heroes of the Spaghetti Western. Uh, I mean, every time a Spaghetti Western's brought up, the first name that's mentioned is Leone, and typically the last name that's mentioned is Leone. But there is, you know, a couple guys in between here who made some really good films and Corbucci was probably the second best maker of uh, the Spaghetti Western uh, so he definitely needs to be rediscovered so there's a lot of films out there on DVD by him so if you guys get a chance to start digging into some Corbucci you'll uh, you'll be entertained I don't think you'll be disappointed not at all and still if anyone's seen the Hellbenders let us know how it is because I know we'd mentioned that I think in our first episode yeah yeah we did mention the Hellbenders and yeah. uh, uh, Campaneros is a good one too. Uh, he actually yep. has. There's another one in between here that he kind of considers a trilogy. His uh, what spaghetti western trilogy. So it's Campaneros, uh, this one, and fuck, I can't remember the other one. But there's another one in there. So, uh, but there's some good stuff in there. So definitely check it out. I'm sure at some point we'll bring. You know, Campaneros will probably be popping up on the the gentleman's guide at some point. <laughs> yeah. I would say so. So that's about that. And then, of course, my score as well is an 8.5. It is a high score, but this is one of the best, if not in some cases, maybe. For some people, the best. I mean, I'm not going to say it's my favorite Spaghetti Western of all time. It is definitely one of the five best Spaghetti Westerns I've ever seen. Uh, maybe maybe the biggest problem with the film is its, uh, it, is its darkness sometimes, but I think it's uh, it makes it unique. It's uh, just a unique film, and it's got, it's got a lot of commentary, and it adds a lot. It kind of reminds me of, uh, uh, maybe this is blasphemy. I don't know. I don't think it is. It kind of reminds me of uh, Eastwood and his commentary on Westerns with Unforgiven. So... There you go. I'll, I'll go ahead no, and I don't think, that. I don't think that's blasphemy. I think that's an accurate uh, thing. And in fact, now that you mentioned Eastwood, I had forgotten about this. I think he actually wanted to remake this at some point. I think it was him that wanted to remake this film. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that, been, that would have been really cool. I can imagine him making it. In a way, to me, Eastwood's been making... He's made this film, really, in a lot of ways. I mean, 
uh, High Plains Drifter a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. The character know? in that was it didn't talk very much from what I remember. It, it had sort of a an otherworldly, or I don't know. Yeah, no, I yeah, agree. It's almost like a meta type western, almost a mm-hmm. supernatural type feel, a Grim Reaper type thing, and and then you know, uh, Pell Rider in some ways, uh, you know, is this kind of the I don't know. You, you can get an Eastwood stuff, and, you, and you'll get a lot of influence from spaghetti western. So, and rightfully so. I mean, he made three films with Leone, and you know, he credits him with everything as far as his filmmaking style. Him and uh, Siegel from Dirty Harry. So there you go. And that's about all I got. So you got two eight point fives and a big recommend from the gentleman, guys. So. Make sure to check this out, and we will be back after this short break. What's up, everybody? This is Bill from Outside the Cinema, and I'm sitting here with the one and only Arnold Schwarzenegger. How are you, Arnold? Good morning. Thank you for taking the time to join me. We were just talking about how much you enjoy Outside the Cinema. Is that correct? Yeah. It's your favorite show, right? Yeah. So, if you were to choose one podcast to listen to, it would be Outside the Cinema, wouldn't it? Come on. Don't bullshit me. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop it. You don't need to be like that. Stop whining. I'm not whining. Whatever your name is, get ready for the big surprise. Oh, enough of this. Who are you? What you just heard was the reason why Outside the Cinema doesn't do pre-recorded bits. Because they do them terribly. But if you like horror, exploitation, cult, and underground cinema, believe it or not, though, they put together a pretty good show. So head over to www.outsidethecinema.com and take a listen to the show today. As we are back from break, little TV on the radio. Great band. Yep, good stuff. All right, we'll cut that down. All right, so we'll go ahead and break into our second feature today. You want to go ahead and introduce that one? I would love to. We were really excited that we were both able to get this one done. It's uh, one of the Buzz films this year. It's from Sweden, Let the Right One In, which is uh, sort of an art house vampire movie, I guess. Uh, and I'll give a plot synopsis for those unfamiliar with it. And at this point, I don't know how you could be. But for those uninitiated, Oscar, a bullied 12-year-old, dreams of revenge. He falls in love with Ellie, a peculiar girl. She can't stand the sun or food, and to come into a room, she needs to be invited. Ellie gives Oscar the strength to hit back, when, but when he realizes that Ellie needs to drink other people's blood uh, to live, he's faced with a choice. How much can love forgive? Let the Right One In is a story both violent and highly romantic, set in the Stockholm suburb of Blackburg, I guess. I just went with it <laughs> in in <laughs> in 1982. <laughs> um, well, this was <laughs> wow. I, I'm not even going to try and say yuk and all these other names because I'm just going to sound like a clown. But um, well, maybe I will. Who cares? Uh, so since I picked this one, Sammy, I know we were both really excited to see it, and I'm sure if I hadn't, you would have. Um, but since I didn't, as is our format, what did you think of it? All right, so where to begin? Uh, this is uh, one of those films, you know, it's buzzed and, you know, a lot of good buzz about it going around stuff. So I had, uh, you know, very keen interest in seeing it. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start with the first thing that jumps out at you in this film, which is the cinematography.
cinematography uh, and the uh, the setting. Uh, again, we brought up the snow in the last review, and the snow is very prevalent in this one too. The cinematography, though, the shot into the sky that's pitch black and then kind of blends in with snow coming down and uh, really sets itself up. I mean, the one thing I always love about European cinema or any cinema outside of America, that uh, the thing I love the most about it is that it seems uh, filmmakers take their time in setting things up. Uh, I, I, you know, I just wish that's what that's what America did in the 70s. And it's what mm-hmm. we don't do anymore. Uh, so and I just wish that uh, we did it more often. I mean, this, there's a, I guess the scene looking into the sky with the snow, I guess it lasts for about uh, about a full minute, maybe a minute and a half, just looking at snow. Really, really great yeah. stuff. And uh, just really, just that one little bit sets up the whole movie for me. You know, kind of the cold loneliness and, and uh, quiet kind of uh, of snow. Uh, I know whenever I've been in a big snow, I've always what I always appreciate about snow, if there is anything to appreciate about snow, uh, <laughs> is that uh, if you're outside and uh, it's a real snowy day, uh, here in the States, they shut down a lot of things. And it's the quiet that I'll, you can almost hear the snow falling. And uh, that's kind of what the feeling you get from this film. So that's the one thing that jumped out at me at first. Uh, also love the the sound of snow on underfoot in this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of scenes where people are walking around in the snow, and you get that unique sound that is walking on snow, the sound that my wife cannot stand, by the way. Oh, that's if odd. Yes, yeah, if she even hears that sound, she starts getting chills. She like so gets much, cold immediately. So much for moving to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There we go. She just cannot stand that sound. So let's just put it that way. But it adds so much to the movie, and, you know, and and seeing the mist from their mouths, you know, as they speak and everything. Which I'll go into detail about that a little bit more. Wouldn't you think that if, uh, and I'm not giving anything away when I say that Ellie is a uh, a vampire, we know that. Uh, wouldn't you think though that if you are a vampire and you're and you're immune to the cold and everything, that if you spoke, that you probably wouldn't have mist coming out of your mouth? Aren't you the Walking Dead at that point? I mean, I would uh, imagine, yeah. If, if we're gonna get technical, yes. <laughs> I mean, this is something that jumped out at me and stuff, and I was thinking, but I mean, that would probably be beyond the budget of this film to computer, you know, to remove, remove. mist from her mouth. It would probably be pretty difficult. Yeah. No, I guess you're technically you're right though. Yeah, I mean, I always I was thinking that, and I actually went back and watched it. Fuck, I'd cut that again. But uh, you know, I, I was thinking about that when uh, when I was watching it. I was thinking, wow, I mean, if she is technically the Walking Dead, which is a vampire, she'll have to, she'll, uh, you know, she won't have any mist coming out of her mouth because she wouldn't have any warmth coming out of her mouth, mm. right? So I don't know. That was just me thinking that way, I guess. So you know, Unless, <laughs> what was that? I was going to say, unless it's so cold in Sweden that <laughs> the undead is uh, warmer than the. The cold, harsh winters of Blackberg, Sweden. <laughs> Blackberg. <laughs> it's it's a, a possible, I guess. Uh, so this is a movie basically about a bullied kid, you know, uh, who's very lonely. This 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 kid, Oscar, he's he's just a lonely kid. I mean, it's he doesn't have any friends. I don't know why. I, maybe he's just shy, or you know, he's obviously the product of a broken home. His uh, dad has some serious issues, which you don't really see. I think it was a nice touch to uh, to show why the parents were separated or why they weren't uh, together all the time. Without mentioning it, they just kind of show the scene and they show the problems that his dad has. Uh, kind of heartbreaking little scene, actually, with, between his dad and a, a friend. I guess. Well, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I kind of got the vibe that maybe the dad was was gay. I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm I'm way off, but yeah. I don't. I don't I, know if it was that, or if it was, you know, he I, has such addictive addiction problems that he, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. I, you know what? I I thought that the first time I watched it, I didn't think it um, as much because I actually went to see it uh, when I went back downtown 
um, with my wife. I wanted her to see it. I didn't think it as much the second time around. I just thought, yeah, it was more showcasing the reasons for the downfall of their marriage. And it was a really heartbreaking little uh, little scene. And there's a lot of those in this film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of moments. Uh, you know, Oscar's a unique kid. He reminds me of, uh, you know, certain things like when I was growing up. Uh, you know, I was into horror films and stuff. And, you know, some of my friends thought, you know, I was an odd person. You know, horror films and long hair and, and metal music and stuff. And, uh, you know, I kind of, uh, I had my, you know, my growing pains like anybody else. I had my, you know, a year or so of, you know, not feeling like I fit in with anybody and stuff. And, and that's that's what it reminded me of. Uh, not that I was as meek as Oscar. Uh, he's, he's a pretty meek kid, I mean, to say the least. And, boy, is he picked on, man. These kids that pick on him are fucking just... I just wanted to strangle these. And I know it's a terrible thing to say, but I just wanted to strangle these fucking kids. That is a terrible <laughs> thing to say because I would have liked to have done more than that. <laughs> these fucking little bastards. I, oh, you know, man, kids awful. can be so cruel, and it's on full display in this film. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just awful. I mean, this oh. kid, they were just mistreated him so badly. You know, the scene where he, you know, I guess they're kind of just whipping his legs with like a like a like a switch, like a real thin stick or a um, like, like an antenna. I don't know if you've ever been smacked with like a like somebody's taking like a real thin, uh, I don't know, pole of some kind or and smacked you across the back of the legs with it or anything, just joking around. But the fucking thing, I've, I've, I had it happen before with a wiffle ball bat. Somebody nice. smacked me across the back of the leg one time in a, in a fight, and that fucking thing stung so bad. It, it really does. <laughs> it stings a lot. Oh, God, it hurts so bad. I mean, your eyes immediately just start tearing up because it just stings so incredibly bad. Well, and I could I so, could feel, while watching this film, they really conveyed it well, I could feel the pain that kid was going through. Yeah, and since you brought that up, I wanted to bring it up. Sort of a really nice, very, very small touch was when they're whipping them, and they finally, they're not getting the response they want, so they whip them across the face. And I thought it was really well done. And again, it was a small thing, but this film is about sort of the small things. Um, they, they, they whip him on the face, and he has a cut, and the cut slowly starts to open up until it starts to bleed. And uh, I thought that was really well done from sort of a, I guess, a minor sort of special effects uh, perspective. Yeah, no, no, that's a way, you know, if you're going to get hit with something that thin and that uh, that would sting that bad, that's the way a cut would happen. I mean, it would it would be a whelp, and then it would just kind of open and uh, kind of start to ooze blood slowly. And, oh, man, that kid, I mean, I just, I felt so bad for him, you know. And my anger, I could feel my heart rate, rate uh, you know, rising up. I just felt like, you know, <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to be there in uh, Blachtenberg or whatever it is and uh, <laughs> kicking some ass, you know, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he he gets he sees Ellie from a distance, but we get a lot of great scenes of him and her on a jungle gym or you know some kind of playground in this uh, kind of a I guess an apartment complex. Uh, I don't know what they would call it in Sweden, but that's you know what we would call it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he you know just sitting outside playing with a Rubik's cube, which was great to see a Rubik's cube again. Haven't seen one in quite some time. No, and uh, you know they just kind of get to know each other slowly, and it's obvious that Ellie's lonely too, and that you know she has some social issues. Of course, you know we know in some regards what her social issues are, obviously, and you know Oscar eventually figures it out. But there's a lot of great touching moments between them, and watching the friendship build between two lonely people. Uh, it's really some really great stuff, and uh, I think you'll hear some more about those scenes coming up uh, later. You will. Before you got off those scenes, did you want to go into anything specific with those scenes, or? Do you mind if I do since you're on the topic? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, that was the thing that, that impressed me uh, the most was just how sweet and how tender those scenes were and how they they felt real. They felt like two young 
well, as much as Ellie was very, very old as a vampire, it felt like two very sweet, touching scenes between two youngsters. You know, a lot of times in films nowadays, they just seem fake, they seem forced, but yeah, the Rubik's Cube scene uh, was really sweet. <clears throat> you know, they both had their guard up initially, but slowly but surely... Uh, they kind of opened up to each other. Yeah, pretty much all the scenes at the Jungle Gym, in fact, so much that very subtly you see from the first time she meets Oscar, and as it, their their relationship progresses, she starts to kind of doll herself up a little bit more and dress nicer. Yeah, yeah. She's you, you know, know. wanting to look better for him, as, as you know, people are wont to do, and that, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, people want to do that. Uh, you know, they might meet a girl or a boy they're interested in the first time without even thinking about their appearance, but it seems like every time from that point on, if they have their eye on them, they tend to you know dress nicer each time or try to you know doll themselves up a little bit more each time so it was a nice touch yeah. oh it really really was and i mean you got the the sort of the running thing with the morse code uh, that they communicate because they their apartments are side by side and it was really sweet um you know they were kind of communicating through morse code to each other again sort of like kids would you know at that age you know that was the best they could do because they can't very well stay on the phone till two in the morning they're a little too young for that yeah. Yeah. No. I think the uh, the also the dialing up. Now that I think about it, another thing in my notes might also come from the fact there's a scene where he tells her that she smells funny. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. That's true. And she gives him this look like, uh, you know, like, no shit, dude. I've been dead for, like, you know, 100 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't, you know, I don't know what a vampire would smell like. I, I, you know, I'm not, I've never been around one. I've been around some people that smell like, you know, <laughs> death, but never, never, uh, never that bad. So, you know, but uh, I think she might have, you know, dialed herself up more for that reason, too, because, you know, he obviously had an issue with her smell. <laughs> yeah, her, her funk was a little too much for him, even in the cold <laughs> Swedish uh, climate. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the the music in this film. Let me say that uh, the music in this film is amazing, and it's real, real subtle stuff. It's real quiet, kind of piano stuff, and there is some sweeping uh, string stuff as well. But it is really well done. It really sets the mood to go along with those long setup scenes that I told you about that I like so much. Uh, I mean, I just like it when a director puts a camera down and lets a scene develop as opposed to, you know, hammering me over the head with dialogue to move a story along. I mean, I don't need that. I just need... I need what this film gives. I need... Uh, put the camera down, let these people interact, and I'll I'll move the story along in my head. I don't need mm-hmm. you to show it to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what this film does really, really well. It really... Uh, let you develop everything. Uh, let me add also the person that the helper for Ellie, <laughs> this older guy. Uh, I know you originally told me that there was a you know it's based on a book and that you know supposedly he was maybe a, a pedophile or something. Maybe that's how he ended up uh, helping her or whatnot. But this guy is we only see him uh, attempt to help her like twice, and he is like a bumbling fool. That's a good point. <laughs> I mean, how, how how long had he been with her that, uh, you know, he had been competent enough to do this work? Because he manages to get a hold of one guy, and then something fucks that up, which, you know, I won't give it away because it's kind of funny. And then, uh, you know, the second time around, he fucks up again. I, I don't know why he keeps, you know, I don't know why he fucks up so much. And there's a payoff with that with him. Uh, oh, yeah. A really great payoff, actually. I love the... Uh, See, it's hard to talk about this film without spoiling it, so I don't want to give away too much, but there is a really great payoff with him. Yeah, there certainly is. That whole scene, uh, visually and otherwise, it's a very powerful scene for a few reasons, and yeah, I won't uh, get into it too, too much either. Yeah, this this review won't be as long as our typical reviews because we don't want to spoil it too bad. We just wanted to talk about the film and why we did like it, which I'm assuming we both did. So <laughs> I haven't heard your score yet, but I'm going to assume that you liked it. I certainly did. The uh, Morse code, like you said, was great. 
they set it up really well. And like all things in films that I appreciate the most, I love it when you set something up in the first 15, 20 minutes of a film and then, you know, you pay it off in the last 15, 20 minutes of a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, signs of a good filmmaker uh, in uh, Tomas Alfredson. I uh, uh, hope he'll get over to, to well, not actually come over here to America no. and make films, <laughs> but hopefully he'll uh, get out of towns like Blockenburg so we can actually talk about the movies a little bit more without sounding like, you know, two fucking meatheads from... Uh, <laughs> The athletic department somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, you see that movie from Blackboard? <laughs> yeah. Slamming heads and lockers all along the way. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's really all I got to say. The performances are really great. The girl that plays uh, Ellie is uh, haunting, to say the least, and she has some of the greatest f- fucking eyes I've ever seen on a child actor. Let me just say also, I'm not going to give away the ending to this film, but let me just say, man, the ending to this film is is almost like and this might sound kind of perverted, but it's almost like an orgasm of pleasure to to uh, to, to the story. Uh, and the ending, it would have been my make or break, I'll say that now, but I don't want to make it my make or break because I can't talk about it that much. Uh, yeah. But it is fucking amazing. And there's some little subtle things. Uh, this is two films we've seen uh, this week that the endings are so powerful in some ways and so great that, uh, you know, you owe it to yourself to see these movies. I mean, God. This, oh. I, I can't even stop thinking about the ending to this film. The the ending or the scene immediately preceding the ending of this film. Um, oh yeah, it, uh, where you and I had talked about it. It is so such a joy and so. Well, let's just, let's just say watch. the last ten minutes of this film. Yes, yes, <laughs> the last 10, 10, 15 minutes are yeah. incredible, and it's such a rush to see it. And it's it's the restraint that's used in this film uh, that it's still a powerful, awesome, satisfying scene despite it being very restrained. Until you see the aftermath, that's all I'll say. Yeah, and I always wondered. This is the last point I'll bring up, and I'll let you get into some things. I always wondered what would happen to a vampire if you didn't invite him in. And uh, I don't think I've ever really seen a film. Well, I mean, I've seen some where they just you know melt, but I've never seen a film that handles it the way this one handled it, which was really nice. It was really nice, and it was really gruesome. And I mean, you really felt for Ellie because Oscar invites her in, and but he doesn't actually invite her in. He just kind of uses his finger to gesture her in, and she's like, okay, well, she's thinking, okay, I'll show him then what happens if he doesn't yeah. invite me in. And, and her head start you hear like it's starting to split and crack and yeah. she's bleeding from her eyes and her ears and he's like, okay okay you're what you come in come in you know and it was yeah it was a really powerful uh, uh, little moment to see yeah the what would uh, the uh, what should we call it the the photos from the press kit uh, that I've seen typically are from that scene so mm-hmm. you can see her with the blood on her face a little bit and things uh, yeah she, it's really really great stuff oh it was the sound in this film was great. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I love the right. sound because uh, uh, you always know. That's one of the things I meant to bring up. That I'm glad you brought that up. The uh, you always know when she's starting to get hungry because you hear the loudest stomach growl. <laughs> you know, yeah. her stomach starts growling, and God, it's so loud. And I think even Oscar hears it at one point, and he's like, "Yeah, what the hell?" <laughs> there's also yeah, a great. There's also a great full body burn in here, which I'm going to assume was an animatronic dummy. But God damn, it was impressive. <laughs> oh, it was. That was a great scene. I wasn't going to bring it up, um, but it was awesome. And I think you see it in the trailer, but I'm not going to say yeah. who it is. Yeah, I'm uh, not going to say who it is either. But man, is it an impressive oof, burn? It was. It was really cool. Okay, I'll try and get through my notes pretty quickly. Uh, the first thing is I'm not a huge vampire movie fan. Um, yeah. I think they've been done to death. I think you know every so often one comes along that kind of adds something new. To the genre, much like Near Dark did, uh, I guess, 20 years ago. You know, I'm really glad, firstly, that they didn't romanticize the whole uh, vampiric, uh, I was going to say state of mind, but the, the whole vamp- vampir- vampirism. 
you know, uh, they didn't make it look like this sort of romantic Euro trash man with long hair and, and five o'clock shadow. And, you know, uh, they embodied it with this, this sort of 12 year old girl. Um, you know, you see she kind of some of the, the acts that are done, like her helper goes and he, you know, he slits throats and tries to drug people and drain their blood. And I mean, it's sort of nasty stuff to see what she needs uh, in order to survive. Um, you know, you see that she, she lives in squalor and she's kind of, you know, it's poor. Um, you know, again, it's not some rich, you know, richy rich castle that she lives in uh, with butlers and, and all this stuff. Um, you know, even the way she preys on people, it's not like, like one of these tortured souls that only preys on the guilty, you know. <laughs> She she preys on on nice people, innocent normal people, and and I'm gonna say it. Fuck it. Yoke was a good man, and uh, you know she. Well, I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying she uh, takes a bite out of him. Um, you know, so it's 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 not as it's sort of black and white. You can see that that's what she is, and I mean, you know, it's the nature of the beast. Yeah, she has no she has no choice. She has to survive. So it's mm-hmm. obvious that she would rather not do that that way. It's obvious she has uh, regrets about being a vampire or you know mm-hmm. something like that. So, uh, but uh, when it comes down to it, you know, you, like anything, you know, you corner any animal, and if it mm-hmm. needs to survive, it's gonna it's gonna fight. Exactly. Um, I did want to mention. I mentioned Fargo in the last uh, review. The scene that reminded me of Fargo was the scene where her helper has a body strung up. Uh, and he's draining it, and this ridiculous-looking large white poodle comes up and starts barking at him. Or not even barking, just looks at him. And the way that shot's framed uh, is is awesome from a technical standpoint, but it just looks so ridiculous. It's such a darkly comic moment. He even throws this little bit of snow at the dog to try and get it to, to take off, and of course the dog doesn't even flinch. Um, but that kind of reminded me of Fargo in that it was a very darkly comic snow set moment. Yeah, I see. I thought and it happens in the beginning of the film too. I thought that okay, so I'm in for some dark comedy in this film. But actually, it's the the one uh, darkly comedic scene and the last darkly comedic scene in the film. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, it is. Now that I uh, I think about it too, you know, and and talking about restraint, I thought. And my wife thought this too. We talked about it. You know, the owners of this dog come to find the dog. And I thought they were going to show the dog had turned around and it was blood all over its snout or, you know, that it was licking up the blood. I really thought they were going to do that way. And again, they exercised restraint by not doing it. Yep. You talked about Ellie's eyes. Yeah, I mean, her eyes were... I'm not really one for eyes, for what it's worth, but... God, her eyes had, you know, for her, such a young actress, um, her eyes to have such a world-weary quality, I thought was... I mean, just a marvel to, to watch on screen and, and see just how weary she was and, and, uh, and all that. I mean, you really believed, um, you believed her in that role. You bought into it. it yeah, you believed she girl. had been around for, I don't know, hundreds of years. And uh, that's really hard for a kid to do. I mean, kids don't, you know, kids are play acting. You know, kids do that. That's what we all do as kids. We, we act out things and, and stuff. But she's real subtle and, and yet weary. That's the best word to describe it, too, is that word weary because... You can tell that she's just, she's just, she's tired, and she's been tired for a long time. So, yeah, that's the best way to put it. Um, I don't want to get into too much specifics on shots. I may mention a few here, but before I do, I want you had touched on the scene with Oscar and his father. Um, I thought, you know, it was very sad but very sweet. Um, was the scene where Oscar's visiting his father, and I think they were playing uh, tic tac toe or checkers or something. I can't remember what. Mm-hmm. And uh, his dad gets up to make them. Bre- I don't know. He gets up to do something, and Oscar grabs his dad's sweater and he puts it on and he, he kind of, he, uh, he smells it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very touching, uh, poignant moment, um, in the film. I, 
I didn't grow up. I mean, I, I was close with my father, but I didn't have him. I didn't live with him. So, you know, it, for me, it was a very poignant scene. Uh, again, a very small thing, a very subtle thing. It wasn't like he was crying and saying, Dad, I miss you. You didn't need him to. I mean, they just, they showed that, that, that brief moment. Uh, and that was enough for you to, for it to convey what they wanted it to convey. Uh, so I really, really like that. Actually, I'm not going to mention one thing I was going to mention there. I'm not going to mention uh, just because I think it's a little spoilery. I thought the set design was great in this and the costumes. I mean, it really, to me, captured early 80s Europe uh, yeah. really, really well. Um, right down to the footwear. I mean, yeah. everything. <laughs> and the Prince about, Valiant. I was thinking about those boots, uh, those galoshes <clears throat> Oscar wears at one point. <laughs> oh, the brown ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I had a pair of those when I was a kid. Um, you know, right down to his, his straggly Prince Valiant haircut. Oh yeah, yeah. You know it. Uh, it was. He's got, it was some, he's got some wicked dance moves too. Let's go ahead and bring that up. He does have some good dance moves. <laughs> Not as good as uh, Crispin Glover or anything along those lines, but no, uh, no, no. I good even, enough. That's, that's blasphemy to even mention that. That's such a great dance scene. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It certainly is. Yeah, I, I don't want to say, I guess, too much more about the shots because there's so much great shots, so many great shots in this film. But I did want to say there was one scene um, where someone gets turned into a vampire and they enter an apartment that is heavily populated by cats. <laughs> God. And that scene, I think, was a prime example of a scene that would have worked very well in the book. I don't think it worked horribly in the film, um, but I think it teetered on the brink of, of being humorous because about 20 cats attack uh, this character because they sense that she, they, they are a vampire. And yeah. uh, I don't know, it, it teetered it on the a, line for it me. Gets, yeah, it gets real close to slapstick. It probably would be slapstick if you you know didn't see some of the, the blunt force that some of the cats end up taking. Oh, yeah. and that's if, sort you're, of if you're a cat down. lover, uh, you might have some issues with this. Uh, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> you certainly will. You certainly will. Um, that's all I really got. I do want to say the film, yeah, again, it was very atmospheric, and uh, it was an excellent little piece of, uh, of film. I did want to say as a piece of trivia, I had seen that uh, the director, Thomas Alfredson, he was the brother of, uh, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I'd read it, he was the brother of Daniel Alfredson. Most Canadians will know Daniel Alfredson, because Daniel Alfredson is the captain of the Ottawa Senators hockey team. Uh, here in Toronto, that's Toronto's most hated rival right now. Uh, I don't. Some people say Montreal because it's an older rivalry, uh, but Ottawa has consistently been better than us uh, lately. So I guess for you, Sam, you would almost be like um, Jason Veritek's brother being an awesome genre director, or um, you know, someone along those lines. Sort of yeah. a bizarre uh, <laughs> thing for me. Yeah, that's uh, pretty much all I got uh, in terms of notes. Um, did you want to go over your stuff, or you want me to? Yeah, I'll go over my make or break and my MVT and stuff. Uh, my make or break for this film is uh, really it's the ending. Uh, but I I don't, I don't want to I don't want to make that my official statement because I can't really talk about it enough and then uh, after it's been out for a while maybe we'll revisit this film at some time in the future and hopefully we'll be doing the podcast for some point of time you know and and maybe we'll get to revisit it and actually kind of gush over the ending of this film but uh, mm-hmm. or the last ten fifteen minutes of it whatever but I'm gonna go with the uh, quiet moments on the jungle gym which uh, are just really really good moments uh, really outstandingly shot they're well set up they're uh they're paced perfectly like two people getting to know each other it's it's this was really really great and and you forget that you're watching uh basically a vampire film it's not really so much a horror film it's more like it's more like a film about you know what it's like to be lonely and what it's like to find somebody and to, to be friends and things and uh yeah it has horror elements don't get me wrong i mean it would be definitely be categorized as such because there are some horrific moments in the film but those scenes on the jungle gym uh there's some great stuff man i mean there's just really no other way to say it i mean i mean it's just really good stuff and it really sucks you in i think there's only like four or five scenes but they're probably four or five of the best scenes in the film 
Mm-hmm. Uh, my MVT, this was almost next to impossible. This is uh, one of those situations. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. The score, the snow, <laughs> cinematography, uh, you know, Ellie. I'm just going to go with uh, the director again. I tend to always lead toward the director. But in this case, it's another sense where I feel like he's really the driving force behind this film. Again, a static camera and landscapes and developing your story. I'm not a filmmaker by trade. Uh, I'm just a film fan, but I know what I like, and what I like is when a director trusts me to understand him as opposed to forcing me to understand him. So uh, he does a really good job here of doing that. And uh, with that being said, I will give this film a an eight 8.5. Uh, uh, it's definitely one of the best films I've seen this year. It, all the hype, it lived up to the hype, which I always get concerned with whenever we you know talk about a movie for a long time or whenever you hear a lot of hype for a film and then when you see it you're always kind of well at least me anyway I'm always kind of let down a little bit uh, I think because I build it up in my head too much but this one actually lives up to the hype and uh, I'm, I was really impressed with it to say the least so eight and a half for me Okay, um, I guess I'll go over my stuff. Um, my make or break was the same as yours for the most part, uh, although I've expanded it a bit. It's basically all the, the scenes, uh, the sort of sweet, tender moments with Ellie and Oscar um, at the Jungle Gym, uh, the Morse code, a uh, candy-eating scene that even though it was a little bit rough, it, it showed that she cared about him. Um, pretty much all their scenes together, I just thought for, for kids that age, usually it comes across as very insincere and very, you know, it's... it's uh, um, crafted for for film or whatever, but they felt natural. So those were were the scenes that really drove the film along for me. Well, I guess as far as my MVT, it's Ladies' Night uh, here for Large William. Uh, I'm going to pick uh, the performance um, of uh, Lena Lee Anderson uh, as Ellie. Um, you know, I could have very easily also went with Alfredson because I think you know for every reason that you had said. But um, as much as it's the director kind of spurring her on, she still has to deliver. And I think for a, a child of you know 12 years old uh, to be able to convey that world readiness to uh, everything that that that's this role encompasses, uh, as far as just being a vampire and so forth, uh, she absolutely nailed it. And it's one of those great performances where it's not. You don't see the actress playing the role. Uh, you you see the role. It's believable. Um, that's why she was my MVT. And in terms of my score, um, my score is slightly lower than yours. Uh, my score is an eight point two five. As everyone knows, I'm a fan of the quarter points. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. This film did live up to everything that I thought it wouldn't. It's just an excellent film. Um, I wish we could have went over a little bit more in depth, but like you had said, I think we don't want to spoil certain payoffs and certain scenes for 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 the viewers. Yeah, uh, of the movie and listeners of our show, um, I think it's an excellent film, and I think it's it's not it's not a horror movie. You're right; it's it's a tender kind of coming of age uh, film that has some horror qualities, but it's it's certainly not a horror movie, as 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 it were. No, no, I mean you. And, you know, that's the thing. I mean, if people would, you know, people who don't like horror films, I recommend checking it out. It does have some horrific moments, I will warn you of that, but uh, still a very sweet and uh, quiet little movie. And I hope it gets uh, I hope it gets a lot of attention. And I will agree with what uh, I read uh, Peter Travers, who uh, writes film reviews for Rolling Stone magazine. He said uh, one thing that I will agree with. Uh, see this film before Hollywood remakes it. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's already, the wheels are already in motion for it to be remade, so... Please, please see this. It's uh, I don't know when the DVD's coming out, but if it's playing in your town, uh, check it out. If it's it's worth the drive. I mean, it's it's a great, great film, and we need to support more original filmmaking like this. Yes, I totally agree. All right. With that being said, we got an eight point two five and an eight point five, and we will be back after this short break with feedback. <laughs> Thank you. 
This is Alyssa from Big Red Podcast, inviting you to listen to our show about pop culture, TV, and cool stuff that we talk about every week. Right, Derek? Well, you know you love it, and we talk about it. And if you haven't been listening, here's what you've been missing out on. And by a lot, I mean there are several shows to talk about, none of which were especially good. You know, it seems mostly uh, what I'm learning is a lot of things to take a lesson from One Tree Hill, and I never thought I'd say that. He also has a magnificent head of hair. Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Viking, whatever. And as with Lost, the flashbacks aren't interesting at this point. <laughs> Uh, I'm just hoping that uh, it won't break my heart like heroes. Like punch a dinosaur in the face? Yes, the mother was was insane and bizarre and apparently high, I'm guessing. I learned a lesson today about karma. The man who can't feel pain shouldn't be dealing with hot liquids and whatever. Right, heating old man. And why are you not winning? So listen to Big Red Podcast if you like TV and junk on TV because we totally watch it and talk about it. So you don't have to. Find us at BigRedPodcast.com or check us out in the iTunes store. Look what you're doing to me. I'm utterly at your whim. All of my defense is down. All right, guys, we are back. Some more jam for you there, Will. Love it. I love me some Pointer Sisters. Good stuff. <laughs> yes, it is. All right, so we'll go ahead and break into some feedback here. We don't have a whole lot this week, but we do have a little bit. Again, guys, keep uh, kicking that feedback our way, and we will keep replying to it, hopefully. Uh, yeah, hopefully. I'm sure we will. <laughs> yes. All right, go ahead. I'll go ahead and let you go ahead with the uh, email we have. Okay, the first one. And I think this might be the first time uh, she's shot us an email that I can remember. Um, I think so. Yeah, Barbarella Cult. Thank you. I'm glad to have you uh, actually on the show now, Barb. Uh, This says, Hello, Midnight Peeps. I just recently purchased The Last Dragon after listening to your review. Like Monster Squad, this movie is much more awesome than I remembered it being. I love the glow, the actors, and music, for the most part. The fighting, clothes, and dialogue. The only flaw in this film for me was Vanity. Sure, she's purdy, and her hair is er, volum- uh, voluminous, voluminous. Uh, but her voice grated on my nerves. I actually think I like Apollonia better, if only slightly better. I must check out Cobra again. I remember being forced to watch all of Stallone's movies as a kid and not liking much of them. The only ones I loved were Cobra, Over the Top, and Rocky. All I can remember of Cobra was... Number one, Cobra was damn cool. Number two, Bridget was very pretty. Number three, Cobra cut pizza with scissors. <laughs> yeah, I need to see this movie again. Keep up the awesome podcast, Barbarella Cult. The new Rambo is awesome. I also like Oscar, and that's, of course, the Stallone one. Should this nice. be a guilty pleasure? I will say, yes, that should absolutely be a guilty pleasure. Um, I'm glad you remembered the pizza cutting with scissors. I do think Apollonia may be a little bit of a better singer than Vanity, but... And she's pretty, but I'm 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 a sucker for the vanity. She's Canadian, so that's where I stand on that. What about you, Sammy? Uh, ooh, uh, that's a that's a tough one for me. Actually, uh, I like Purple Rain quite a bit, but I liked it quite a bit when I was a younger man because I saw a lot of Apollonia and uh, mm. Purple Rain. And uh, wow. Uh, either way, uh, I wouldn't mind being the you know white stuff between the two Oreos there. Oh, maybe that's the wrong term to use. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) or maybe i'll leave that in i don't know (laughs) nice 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind either, man. That uh, that's a damn fine cookie you just made. <laughs> oh Jesus! Anyway, uh, yeah, and uh, Oscar is awesome. Uh, it's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's entertaining for some reason. So I'm with you on that one, Barb. I mean, it is a true definition of a guilty pleasure, though, because it. It really isn't a very good movie at all, uh, and very few people like it, but for some strange reason, I do. I have no idea why. No idea. <laughs> and no Rambo why. is awesome. Rambo is... It, I can't even say enough about Rambo. <laughs> Me neither. It's one of my favorite genre movies of the year. Oh, God. It's, it's an amazing piece of filmmaking. Amazing. Yep. All right, so we got a voicemail from this gentleman here. Hey, guys. This is Nate from Maryland. Uh, just calling to say I really uh, like the show. Um, been running a little behind. I don't know if anybody uh, has told you guys this yet, but a few episodes back you were talking about um, thought it'd be interesting if an Asian filmmaker would make a Western. Well, I believe uh, back in 2001, I think it's 2001, um, Ang Lee made a Western. I uh, believe it's called Ride with the Devil. Um, it had uh, Tobey Maguire in it. Uh, it's a pretty interesting little film that I don't think a lot of people have heard of, but... Um, just wanted to let you know that yeah there there is a, a western made by an asian filmmaker so uh thought you guys might be interested in checking that out anyway keep up the the good work uh the show's still pretty young but uh definitely one of my favorites you guys are uh pretty much on point oh and i also wanted to say thanks for reviewing um the uh brotherhood of the wolf that's one of my favorite movies and i think you guys are the first podcast i've heard uh uh, uh mention it let alone review it yeah it was it was good and, uh, after hearing your review uh, i'm gonna have to dig it out and watch it again here i really like that anyway uh take it easy guys keep it up bye all right, that was from Nate in Maryland. So you got anything you want to add to uh, his comments there, Will? Uh, yes, thanks for the call, Nate. We certainly appreciate him. We're glad that you're happy with the show. Uh, hopefully we can continue to satisfy your genre needs. Um, yeah, I'd never, I've never actually seen that film. I've, I remember the name. And the funny thing about Lee is, uh, as good of an Asian filmmaker as he is, he's very, very competent at making uh, American-themed films. I mean, he's an excellent filmmaker. Um, mm mm-hmm. And that's the thing I find most impressive about him is that he, you know, I think the ice storm, or was it the ice storm? Yeah, it was the ice storm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, Brokeback Mountain, um, I mean, he's just a very, very good filmmaker, and he absolutely nails uh, very American-feeling films. I've never seen that, and I, that's piqued my interest, because I'd always heard the name, but uh, it kind of got consigned to the, the dustbin of my brain uh, for some reason. Have you seen it, Sammy? No, I have not. It's one of those films that kind of snuck by everybody. It didn't get much of a release, and then it was out on DVD, and then it was just gone. And I'm sure it's good. I've not seen a Lee film yet I really don't like. Uh, I even prefer the Lee version of The Hulk compared to the Louis Letier version of The Hulk. Uh, except for the fucking Hulk dogs. But that's another comment for another show. But uh, Lee is, uh, and I agree with you, he's an amazing filmmaker. I mean... Uh, there's no way about it. No way sands or butts about it. I mean, look at his filmography, guys. Look at everything he's done. Uh, the guy's amazing. I mean, he really is. And I look forward to everything he makes. Uh, probably one of the, I'd say, and you'll probably agree with this, probably one of the uh, five best filmmakers working right now, I'd say. He's up there, man. He's one hell of a filmmaker, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, when you look at the, the East and West stuff combined and how easily he kind of flows between the two, yeah, he's... He's, he's in the storyteller. He's a storyteller, and by saying that is what I mean is what Will's saying is that he can jump from you know Eastern filmmaking to Western filmmaking, and you really get no you get no ill effects from either or. So there you go. No, definitely not. Yeah, he's a great, great uh, filmmaker. 
And yes, you are right. Brotherhood of the Wolf is cool. That's why we covered it. We both like it too. So, <laughs> damn the haters. Yes. All right. And then we get the voicemail from uh, a rather timely voicemail from this gentleman here. Hey, Perhaps. gentlemen. This is Dr. J and my daughter. Hey, Kate. And we wanted to call in another movie review for the show. We knew that this week you were doing Let, Let the Right One In, so we wanted to call and give a review of the show. So, KK, what did you think of the movie? I didn't see it. You're darn right you didn't see it. Now get out of here and let Daddy review the movie. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Let the Dark One, Let the Right One In is um, everything everyone has said it is. It is a very intelligent reworking of the vampire um, mythos. Uh, gives a fresh take on it. Gets rid of that... Uh, romantic Hollywood-type vampire that um, Twilight is so eagerly promoting and instead has just a dark, cold, and lonely atmosphere. Um, the cinematography is beautiful with just the environment on film coming across as, as, as making you feel the coldness and the loneliness in the movie. Not a big fan of all the colored blue filters and, and such used in... Uh, Europe so much it seems to be such a big trend, but in this movie it works uh, so well. Um, this movie has layers upon layers upon layers of, of, of meaning. There are no throwaway scenes in the movie. It seems that every time I go back and think about the movies, subtle little things that either I didn't notice or that seemed a little out of place come back to add meaning to what was going on in the movie. Um, the second act of the movie is somewhat of a slow burn, and that's where most of this development is, and, and most of what you can reflect on um, comes across. Um, and it was integral, integral to the story to have this there. Um, in order to keep from adding any spoilers in, I don't want to cover much of the um, plot or many of the uh, scenes that aren't touched upon in the trailer. Uh, so that I don't ruin this movie for anyone else. However, I don't see how you guys are going to review this without giving some spoilers away, so you may have already um, given enough uh, warning in your show. Wasn't easy. However, um, <laughs> I'm going to have to say that my make-or-break scene was the one of the opening scenes that is in the trailer with, the, uh, with Ellie up on top of the jungle gym um, and... Uh, the way she jumps off of the jungle gym, just subtly in the background almost, floating to the ground almost, not over the top and um, in your face like in um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon or something, but just a very, very gentle and subtle image that uh, lets you know that, this is, that there's more going on here than just a, a girl in the neighborhood. Um, most valuable thing in the movie had to be the actress that played Ellie, that haunting, haunting little girl who can portray gentle innocence and savage brutality um, so easily. She comes across not as evil in her role as a vampire and not as romanticized, but just somewhat animalistic when she reverts and takes down the human mask and, and shows the, the vampire in her. Um, I have to throw in a, a what-the-fuck scene. Um, <laughs> the scene where uh, she's caught um, a, a quick glimpse of her 
undressed is caught um, just split seconds of um, of image, but um, conveyed a, a sense of, of abuse to me that added layers to her background, um, child abuse, sexual abuse, that kind of stuff. Um, overall, my, my opinion of this movie is it, it, it easily uh, jumps into my top six list of movies from 2008, and uh, that's a theme for another show, but still, <laughs> this is one of the best movies I've seen all year. I do highly recommend it for anyone else who wants to, to get into the vampire genre again. And so I'm finishing my review, and this is uh, Dr. J without my daughter KK, and uh, I'll be calling back some other time. Okay, that was from the doc, and uh, the doc seemed to enjoy Let the Right One In quite a bit. Yes, and we're glad he did, and he touched on a lot of things we did. Uh, so we're glad you called in the review, Doc, uh, and glad you enjoyed it. Maybe in a few years, KK can see it. And, of course, as always, next time our in-the-field voice of the new generation correspondent sees anything genre-related, she, along with her dad, can call us and uh, give, us a, give us a review. Yeah, and like you said, Doc, it, and, and you'll know this after listening to the show now, uh, it really is hard to review a film, a newer film especially, for us, because we're not big fans of giving away spoilers, so... The review's kind of shorter than we typically dig into, but that's okay. I mean, you know, we're not always going to go as deep as we could go because, trust me, we could, uh, you know, we could do a, <laughs> we could do a lot of time on let the right one in. I think. Yes. <laughs> All right. With that being said, I'll play this. All right. So another episode in the books. Feels good. The gentleman's got the midnight cinema episode. 11. Now we're heading toward 20. All right, so I wanted to go over a few things. Uh, as always, make sure to go over to uh, Pop Syndicate and join up over there, be a part of the uh, community and the forums. Uh, that'd be really great. Uh, also, they got the you know five-a-week giveaway going again, so that can't hurt you at all. Free swag and all that good stuff, and we'd love to see you over there. Also, uh, check out our other friends over there at Pop Syndicate. Check out the whole Pop Syndicate family. A lot of good stuff going on over there. A lot of good podcasts, so make sure to check them out. Uh, I want to go over... Uh, also, make sure to check out uh, Destroy the Brain at DestroyTheBrainOnline.com Chinstroker vs. Punter, Chinstroker vs. Punter.com and Mondo Movie. Don't forget about those guys either. MondoMovie.com Some other good podcasts that aren't part of the Pop Syndicate family. Some good stuff out there. Um, next week, we are going to be covering a couple of unique films. Uh... I picked a little ditty known as uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, a uh, Peckinpah film. So we've been wanting to cover some Peckinpah, and uh, we're going to break it in with some Alfredo Garcia. So that's my pick. And, uh, Will, you want to go over your pick? Yes, my pick, uh, as you, as always, I'm very, very excited for. I know Hans on the boards is a big fan of it. And this was a uh, yard sale 25-cent VHS discovery, and I'm very glad <laughs> I did because it's the best 25 cents I ever spent. It is Sergio Martino's post-apocalyptic arm-wrestling trucker Terminator classic, Hands of Steel, a.k.a. Atomic Cyborg. <laughs> a.k.a. Gold. Yeah, it's, yes. uh, we can't, I have and I haven't actually seen the film, so this will be the first time I've seen it, but I just know from, uh, Will's Glee and, uh, that Hans is a fan that, uh, I'm going to be interested in this. And also it's directed by Sergio Martino, who I, I quite enjoy, so I'm looking forward to that. Quite a bit. Should be an interesting show. Also, make sure to send us emails at uh, midnightcinema gmail.com and voicemails to 2065, uh, or my bad, 206-666-5207. And uh, check out our website, ggtmc.libsyn.com. And that's about all I got. 
So, will you get anything else you like that? Adios. <laughs> Adios.